Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Valor, and today we are going to talk about the Barbie movie. Now, I want to say thank you to everyone for bearing with me through my up and down recording and release schedule. I have been studying for the EPPP in the last few months, and I took it not that long ago, and I'm pleased to say that I passed. So now that that hurdle is out of the way and I only have one more licensing exam uh, left to take, I'm going to get back into recording this show at a more regular pace. I'm going to try to go back to weekly uploads, but I may bounce back and forth between weekly and bi-weekly as I come to the next licensing exam for my state-based license. Um, But yeah, I just want to say thank you to everyone for the support and for bearing with me as I balance all of the things that come with being a psychologist, as well as doing this very fun podcast that I love to do and is an act of self-care in some ways. So speaking of an act of self-care, I saw the Barbie movie a few weeks ago and it was truly, truly spectacular. I don't think any of my listeners or anyone who knows me in real life would be surprised to know that I absolutely loved the Barbie movie. I thought that it was really funny. I thought that the actors were really great. I personally felt that it did a very good job in presenting kind of all of the different points of discussion around Barbie as like an entity or as a symbol uh, and kind of giving some also interesting conversation around different points in terms of like feminism and gender relationships. I think on one hand, for some, as someone who did play with Barbies growing up, Barbie did pull on some nostalgia, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later about how that relates to psychology and our mental well-being. It definitely did bring up some nostalgia for me as well, and I also thought that it was really interesting how the film included a 
I guess, preteen character who is starting to come to terms with what it means to be a woman. And she is very, like, dismissive of Barbie. She pushes Barbie away. She, she has a lot of the critiques of Barbie that I had at a very similar age. And so I thought that that was quite a nice vehicle for those critiques of Barbie to come into the movie through a character who was at the age that I was at when I started to critique Barbie and other types of like stereotypical presentations of femininity or womanhood. The contrast between that character and her mother, who was really more in a space of having nostalgia for Barbie and having a connection to Barbie in terms of what she represents in not only her childhood, but in her own child's growing up. I thought that those characters did a really nice job of presenting these complicated conversations that we have about Barbie. And I think that the film also did a good job of not saying that those conversations have to be resolved in one go. I felt like the end of the movie ended with a lot of ambiguity of what is Barbie going to do next? What does it mean for, you know, like the real world? What is the Barbie land going to look like? There was a lot of ambiguity that I think signals to the audience that we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to quote unquote solve the problem of Barbie or the problem of representing gender and gender relationships in media, toys, pop culture, we don't have to have those things solved, but we can have avenues where we can have discussions about them. So all around, I thought the movie was really well done. Greta Gerwig is a a classic, truly a wonderful director. Um, I was excited to see her work on this and as well as her writing on it. Margot Robbie did a fantastic job being Barbie. And yeah, I think all around, I really liked it. But what I want to spend some time in this episode talking about is a couple of things about like psychology and mental health, because of course, that's the point of the podcast. And then talking a little bit about some of the critiques of Barbie that I've seen and that I, the Barbie movie that I've had as well. Um, I think it just can just continue this conversation about Barbie and the complexity of this issue. We don't have to have it solved at the end of this episode either, but we might as well take a stab at it as well. So first off, I want to start off by talking about the role of nostalgia in our psychological well-being. This movie was pretty much nostalgia heavy. Uh, I actually read an interview with Greta Gerwig where she specifically talks about making the sets and the aesthetic of the movie very highly saturated colors, sparkly, really over the top. And she did that specifically for nostalgia reasons and really connecting with the part of her that in childhood gravitated toward like sparkly, bright, colorful things. So even down to like the fabric of the film, it's all around nostalgia. Often I think nostalgia can come up, have kind of a negative connotation when people talk about it, that people are living in the past, or I've even heard people talk about it as being cringy, that people engage in nostalgia content. But I, I found some interesting articles about the positives of nostalgia and how it may actually help us to feel more connected to other people. So all of this comes from the article written by Travers on the emotion powering Barbie's popularity and that emotion is nostalgia and some of the research that was cited 
has found that nostalgia seems to be linked to things like social connectedness, having a sense of purpose, and a sense of self-continuity. All of these factors have been linked in psychological research to well-being and helping people to feel like their lives have more meaning. So let's break down each parts of that real quick. So social connectedness, pretty obvious. It's about feeling connected to other people. Uh, my guess is that nostalgia facilitates this connection to others because there's a shared interest, right? We have kind of a commonality of things that we can be interested in. And in fact, other studies have found that nostalgia does help us to form groups that work toward a common goal and can be part of a coping strategy for dealing with loneliness. Because there is a shared interest, it's easy to form a group around it, which can be a good way to get into a group or a social situation if you're feeling like maybe you're more isolated or disconnected from other people. Feeling socially connected to other people is an important part of well-being overall. It's something that has been much more of a focus in the literature post the COVID shutdowns because people became very isolated very quickly due to things being shut down and stay-at-home orders. And so there's been an increased interest in this idea of we do need to be connected to other people to be psychologically well, right, to, to improve our well-being. And so nostalgia, that, that experience of that emotion of nostalgia can also lead to us feeling more connected to other people. I think it's partly because we see other people having the same emotional reaction to us. We tend to like people who are similar to us. So if we're seeing people experience nostalgia for the same things, we're going to be like we're going to like them and want to be connected to them because they're similar to us. They're having the same emotional reaction to us. Nostalgia also, like they mentioned before, is connected to a sense of purpose. So it can really give people this idea that we have something that we're maybe like working toward or a purpose in our life. I know that I have several friends who collect nostalgic items. So maybe they collect things like video games from their childhood or uh, like figurines, other types of collectibles that really tie into those properties that they loved when they were younger. And that gives someone a purpose, right? There's a goal that you're chasing after. There's a community there as well. The collector community can be very close-knit as well. And there is an identifiable purpose of, I want to get this many items, or I want to get this rare thing. And the, the joy of chasing down that thing and engaging in it can also uh, contribute to that sense of purpose. I can say in terms of just like anecdotally working with, with clients in a clinical capacity, having a sense of purpose is really important for well-being overall of just having something that gets you up and out of bed every day can really improve someone's mental health and can sometimes be the kind of motivation behind using a clinical treatment like behavioral activation. Behavioral activation is where we just try to help clients do more, do more things and do more things that make them feel good instead of just being on the endless treadmill of things that don't make them feel good. So nostalgia can give us a, a little bit of that sense of purpose as well. And nostalgia can increase our feelings of self-continuity. Now this is the idea that the self 
not only continues on through lifetime, it may continue on after lifetime as well. And so nostalgia helps us to kind of anchor back into our childhood, right? Nostalgia is typically for things that happened to us either in childhood or adolescence. We typically don't feel nostalgic for something that happened like last week, although I guess you really could. <laughs> but it's typically for a time that's pretty removed from the time or age that we are in the current day. And so that anchors us in our lifetime and reminds us of kind of how our identity continues on from those earlier developmental periods, right? If I'm someone who likes Barbie now and liked Barbie then, that is something that has continued with me through my life and is a maybe more stable part of my personality or my identity. It could be the same thing for uh, you know, like Disneyland or uh, Street Fighter or Pokemon, right? Just having that, this is a consistent thing that I have been interested in. Now, our relationship to that thing can change, right? As a an adult, I don't necessarily have Barbies that I play with every day. I don't actually don't own anything Barbie branded. Whereas as a child, I had many things that were Barbie branded. I had Barbies and a Barbie kitchen and I had the like swimming pool set, which was my favorite thing to play with. And so the material relationship that I have to Barbie has changed. However, my emotional connection to Barbie has remained somewhat stable. Now, yes, I, I would have gone up and down and had my, my teenage years of rebelling against Barbie, but can now access that sense of nostalgia, that sense of like comfort and continuity of this was a thing that was with me in childhood and can be with me in adulthood. And there is something very wonderful about having that continuity. So whenever I hear someone saying that like nostalgia is cringe or, you know, it's like arrested development, people being stuck in their childhood, I think we can kind of counter that with this idea of, sure, maybe my interests remain the same. Maybe my relationship to them has changed. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing because my interests have stayed the same. Something there is pretty powerful that's keeping me invested in the same, you know, interest all of these years. So those are the kind of three components uh, in which it seems that nostalgia as an emotion um, helps us. And the main way that it seems to help us is it reduces our stress. It's a protective mechanism against stress. This is again from the Travers article, but they mention some research that was done post-COVID, post-pandemic, um, that looked at nostalgia being specifically triggered by negative feelings or when somebody was becoming stressed out, nostalgia tended to increase at that time and seemed to serve as this purpose to protect the person against stress by bringing in more positive emotions, this more social connection, connectiveness, and this sense of purpose. So nostalgia, if you, if you find yourself feeling more nostalgia or feeling it, it happening more often, it might be a protective mechanism against high levels of stress or feeling stressed out for, you know, a long time or, or chronically stressed. So maybe your brain is trying to give you a little message that we're, we're really stressed out here and we need to take a little bit of a mental vacation by going back to that time, experiencing what it's like to be a kid again and be connected with these things that we used to love so much at different parts in our lives.
So I guess my biggest takeaway would be that if someone tells you you're cringe because you like engaging in nostalgic content, you can tell them, actually, I'm reducing my stress and giving myself a sense of purpose. <laughs> Another kind of psychological realm that I thought the Barbie movie touched on quite a bit was um, this kind of trope of the identity crisis or the idea of an identity crisis. That's really the driving plot point for Barbie is she starts to become a little more aware of things like death and existential dread and by becoming aware of those things she kind of loses track of what her identity is and is working to figure those things out. And like I said up top the nice thing about this movie is that she does not have it a hundred percent figured out by the time we get to the end of the film. We see her be in this stage where she's still exploring what her identity is going to be, which world is she even going to live in. And I thought that was a really nice way to bring in this idea of something called the identity moratorium. This comes out of research that's typically done with adolescents and looks at the idea of like how do people in adolescence and emerging adulthood come up with or identify their own identity or sense of self. And Often the research does it in terms of things like career. So if you're someone who all through high school said, I'm going to be one, I'm going to be one career, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a doctor, all of my family members are doctors, and you go to college to go to med school and you become a doctor, you didn't really do any identity exploration. Like you kind of picked a path and, and there's your identity. Some people, they have the opposite experience where their family there's pressure to be one thing, to be a doctor, be a doctor, and then they get to college or out of high school and they don't want to do that. They want to explore other options. That is usually when we use the term identity moratorium, specifically when people are in a situation where they're exploring multiple different things. So this might be the stereotype of a college kid who like goes into college with an undeclared major and takes a bunch of classes and doesn't seem to quite have an idea of what they want to do as they start their college career. Or maybe someone who completed high school and shops around for jobs, wants to try different types of training things, and you know doesn't seem to definitely have a, a career path. Typically, in, at least in the cultural context that we have about it, we look at people in that identity moratorium phase as people who are doing something wrong. They don't know what they want. They need to figure it out. They need to lock down something. But the research actually shows that identity moratorium or this idea where, okay, I've put my identity on pause and I'm going to explore what I want to lock into, that that can be actually quite healthy for adolescents and emerging adults to truly figure out what it is that they want to do. In Barbie's case, especially if we look at the main character that's played by Margot Robbie, which is the stereotypical Barbie, she had an identity picked for her, right? She's kind of, she would be more in that category of everyone in the family is a doctor, so I'm going to go to med school and become a doctor and not explore anything else. She just was stereotypical Barbie. She did not explore. She didn't try on other costumes of other Barbies. She didn't have other roles. She just was stereotypical Barbie. However, we start to see her move into this phase of not knowing what that means for her. What does it truly mean to be stereotypical Barbie? And, and how does one be stereotypical Barbie while they're also having thoughts of existential dread, which is what she starts to have uh, as she, you know, in the beginning of the movie, as she starts to 
get on the path for her leaving Barbie world. And we we actually don't see Barbie resolve her identity crisis at the end of the movie. She's actually moved into identity moratorium, which means she's put a pause on figuring out who she is. She's no longer stereotype stereotypical Barbie. She may go back to being stereotypical Barbie, but she is exploring the options, which one of the options seems to be being a human in the human world. And again, I really love that about this film, that Barbie did not have to just pick one side or just stay put, that she had the freedom to continue to explore what did she want her life to be like. And that is what I hope for all people, is this opportunity to truly explore what it is they want to do. Now, you may be someone who comes from a family of, you know, we're all plumbers, you go to trade school, you become a plumber. That's what our family does. You may take the time to explore different identities and then end up saying, actually, I I do want to be a plumber. I do want to go in this direction of my life. That is not a failed identity crisis either. That is also successful. The, The idea is that you give yourself the opportunity to reflect and explore things before settling down or settling into a career path. I think this can be equally applied to things like deciding if one wants to be a parent or if one wants to have a certain type of romantic relationship. You know, the kind of prescribed path is you get married and you have kids, right? That's kind of the American dream or (laughs) like, I don't know, it's not my American dream, but you know, that's kind of like the, the cultural expectations for especially emerging adults, right? Is not only have you chosen a career path, but you should be choosing your life partner and be figuring out if you're going to have kids. People go through a very similar process of deciding these things as well. They might explore different identities of, am I a person who wants to be married, to be in a long-term partnership? Maybe I don't want to be in a partnership. And often, trouble can come up if you get put into one of those categories without getting to explore what it is you want for yourself. Now, the exploration doesn't necessarily mean like getting married to a bunch of people or not, or like having a bunch of kids that you're not going to raise, but it's about mentally exploring what would it look like for me to be a parent? What would it look like for me to be a spouse or or not, right? What would it look like for me to be in a long-term relationship and allowing the self to process in imagination or even through certain things like dating, maybe taking care of children in the family or babysitting or uh, talking with other friends or people who maybe are a little farther along and have made those certain decisions. All of that is part of kind of exploring these identities. And the problem arises when you get locked into a category that you didn't have an opportunity to explore. Barbie very similarly didn't have an opportunity to explore if she wanted to be who she was labeled to be. That's where Barbie and people are very similar. We need an opportunity to explore and truly understand why we have these labels put on us. And I I, I want to just say that I don't think an identity crisis itself is inherently a negative thing. That's another thing that gets kind of pejoratively thrown around is that Oh, you or you're having an identity crisis, and we make jokes about like midlife crisis, you know, balding men buying sports cars, or you know, like middle-aged women getting plastic surgery. We have we have some pretty like pejorative stereotypes about an identity crisis, but an identity crisis in and of itself is not 
a bad thing. It gives the person going through it an opportunity to maybe make some changes and really kind of come to brass tacks about what it is they want their identity to be. Now, an identity crisis can be resolved in a way that maybe is negative, right? That maybe the person doesn't truly resolve it and so stays in this kind of moratorium or tumultuous setting uh, or maybe just bails out and picks the first solution uh, without actually going through the process through going through the crisis and considering all options but having an identity crisis can be a really an important and formative time for somebody who is figuring out what they want. And it can come at any point in life, right? It doesn't have to be in your midlife. It doesn't have to be your quarter life crisis when you turn 25, right? It doesn't have to be whatever timeline. It can happen to any of us and it can be important information. So, you know, this is where I always come in and say, go to therapy. This might be something to talk to a therapist about. Um, But not being afraid of going through an identity crisis, of really looking at it as an opportunity to learn more about yourself and figure out what you really want out of your life. So the last kind of mental health point that I wanted to make um, about Barbie actually comes from this very interesting article in Psychology Today about male psychology. And it was written by someone who does a lot of couples work. And so he had two main points that he wrote about that I want to kind of summarize and expand upon here. Uh, And this is the uh, Balysis article in the sources page. Uh, So the first one was this uh, way in which Barbie demonstrates the common mistake that men, mainly heterosexual men, make of mistaking emotional support for sexual advances. And this comes, this very clear example of it comes closer to the end of the movie when Barbie has returned to Barbie land to see that Ken has turned it into patriarchy and the Barbies have defeated the patriarchy. Yay. Good, good job, Barbies. (laughs) And Ken and Barbie are having a conversation where he is expressing that he's having a tough time and that he's he doesn't know who he is without Barbie. And and she gives him some emotional support and even kind of takes accountability for maybe the role that she played in it. She's, you know, demonstrating that she has a lot of wisdom and empathy and she's being emotionally supportive of him. And he, like, grabs her and dips her to kiss her after she is emotionally supportive to him. And in that moment, we see that Ken is not able to distinguish between emotional intimacy and physical intimacy. He perceives Barbie being emotionally supportive of him as a green flag or a green light for sexual contact and and physical intimacy. And the author of the article talks about this as well. And I thought that this was so interesting that often this can happen in relationships between especially relationships that include men and women where the man is seeking physical touch is seeking physical contact um, and then starts to learn that sexual contact is doled out in emotional settings as kind of like a pity or a sympathy thing and so rather than being able to use emotional support to like regulate one's own emotions or you know just use it as supportive the man starts to interpret it as this is 
how sexual contact is initiated and this is like my opportunity to have that type of, of contact and i agree with the art author's recommendations as well as like of helping men to differentiate between what is emotional support and what is physical intimacy uh, and being able to be comfortable with being emotionally vulnerable without it immediately following up with physical vulnerability or intimacy and I do think that it was important that in the Barbie movie that Barbie established a boundary with Ken and did not engage in more sexual contact. Like she did not want to be kissed and she did not then by through a place of pity engage in like having sex or making out with Ken to comfort him. And I think that that was also that's an important thing to show because often in media, especially like movies, we see women comforting men in times of, of hardship and it ending up in a sexual situation or a physically intimate situation. And so Barbie saying, that's actually not what I'm offering here. I, I don't want to cross those wires for you is a way that she is supporting her male partner. I don't know if they're truly, I guess they're not really partners, but her supporting Ken is by, by helping him to navigate that we don't want to cross these wires, that I'm only offering emotional support and not physical support and, and that that's okay. And I'm letting you know, you can get your physical support from someone else because I'm, I'm not interested in offering it to you. So I, I really liked that that was how the movie dealt with that because it could have been very easy for the character to just kind of go along with it and, and be physically intimate with Ken just to help make him feel better because I think that also does not serve either person in the situation right it does not help the man if the emotional intimacy is constantly tied to physical intimacy and it doesn't help the woman who who isn't able to like have those boundaries established or able to provide emotional support for their partner uh, without it becoming a, a sexual situation so I thought that that was this really wonderful and I highly recommend you check out the whole article on psychology today to to see more about what that author recommends the second point that he made that I, I thought was also very interesting was that um, he talked about how the shame that Ken feels in the movie gets translated into anger. And then that often can be seen in men as well, that the discomfort of shame, obviously shame is very uncomfortable, but the discomfort of shame gets translated into anger for it to be expressed. And this is really highlighted by the entire kind of scope of Ken's story in the movie. We find out in some of the first few scenes that Ken's get their whole, their whole existence and joy are from having Barbie's attention. And we see that when the Ken that Ryan Gosling plays, cause they're all named Ken, <laughs> but the Ken that Ryan Gosling plays when he is kind of not the sole recipient of stereotypical Barbie's attention, he experiences quite a range of emotions, including shame, jealousy, and ultimately anger, which then leads him to bring patriarchy home with him from the real world and begin the process of building the Mojo Dojo Casa Houses. And this, this is something that I have seen in my clinical work as well. And the author of the article uh, highlights it that often for men, feeling an emotion like shame is it's very difficult it's hard for all of us nobody wants to feel shame right regardless of your gender identity or whatever nobody wants to feel 
ashamed or shameful. Uh, but for men, when they feel shame, that there often are very few outlets to express that this is the emotion that they are having. And it gets ineffectively translated into anger, hence the lashing out at Barbie, lashing out at the other Kens toward the beginning of the movie. That is the way, the kind of pathway through which um, men express their shame. And the author suggests that if you're working with men, that using tools to help them to process their shame and communicate their shame without it going to anger. That if they can identify and process the shame when it is shame before it gets translated into anger, then their needs can get met a little faster, right? Their their needs can be met in a more appropriate way. Um, and they start to build this capacity for tolerating shame. I think that particularly for people who are socialized to be a male or to be a boy, that pathway is quite common. But I think that this can apply to anyone. That if, if their reaction to uh, feeling shame is to express it through anger, that getting back to that kind of primary emotion, the shame is the primary emotion, the anger is the secondary emotion. So let's work on the primary emotion. How can we cope with that? Or how can we adapt to that in a way that is healthy and productive rather than sitting in the anger and stewing in the anger because what happens with ken when he sits in his anger he ends up literally bringing patriarchy to barbie land and overthrowing the government in a very january 6th style <laughs> experience uh, and he ends up doing harm to his community because of the anger that he feels and you know, I know Ken is not the main character I don't think that Ken should be the main character of the barbie movie um but I think that there is something to his story about kind of wrestling with these these primary emotions, this this ang this fear and shame, and wrestling with those rather than immediately translating them to anger to have them be expressed. Because anger can very often be directed at other people, and shame and other emotions tend to be very directed toward ourselves. So it makes sense that we turn to anger, but it can be less productive to deal with the anger than it is to deal with that primary emotion. I think the film also tried to touch on things like jealousy between men, especially sexual jealousy. Um, I think the character of Alan was very interesting in that he's not the stereotypical Ken. He's, he's not like everyone else. And um, this was mentioned in an article I'm going to talk about soon that, you know, Alan's physique was kind of the joke that he wasn't hot like Ken that, that kind of becomes the joke in a, in a kind of body shaming way. Um, but he also represents a different facet of masculinity and, and serves to be, um, you know, counter to the Ken's point. Uh, so I, I, I thought that that was very interesting, kind of seeing these different types of masculinities show up um, in, in the Barbie movie. So lastly, I just want to talk touch on some critiques of the film. The main points from this come from an article called Is the Barbie Movie a Feminist Triumph or Flop? that was written in Women's Agenda by three gender studies um, academics. And they, they make a few points that I think are, are quite valid. And the biggest one that I think should be mentioned is that the way that Barbie movie presents gender dynamics is very binary. It was very much like men versus women and the power dynamic shifting uh, between those two ends of the spectrum without any any consideration of like gender fluidity and, and not even just that like the Barbies 
none of the Barbies were non-binary or gender fluid, but there were very like prescribed gender roles in both iterations of the Barbie society, right? When the when the Barbies are in control, it's that the Barbies have specific jobs and the Kens have specific jobs. And it when the Kens were in control and it flipped, it was kind of the same thing. The Barbies had specific roles that were unfortunately <laughs> very misogynistic right like the being kind of like waitresses and just existing to further the interests of the men but it was similar when the barbies were in control like the men only served to um kind of participate in in their in their world um as sidekicks so there isn't a lot of space for nuance um in terms of of gender and although on one hand barbie does represent that girls can be anything that they want it is that girls can be anything they want in this very hyper feminine way, right? They're aside from the weird Barbie, which is Kate McKinnon's character, which is fantastic. There, there isn't like a tomboy Barbie, right? There isn't like a Barbie who wears like dungarees. I don't know why that was the first thing I thought of, but you know what I mean? Like there, there aren't Barbies that all of the Barbies are in incredibly hyper feminine outfits and hyper feminine presentations of their gender. And I do think that the authors of this article raise a very good point that the last line of the movie is a joke about Barbie getting a vagina. She's visiting her gynecologist and it's implied that she's there because she was a Barbie that had no genitalia and now is getting genitalia. And so although it is, it's funny, it's a funny line. It does kind of, it's this very reductive point that, you know, her getting a vagina is is part of her becoming a human woman or like becoming a woman. And that's not, that's not something that's necessary. And so just having the last line of the movie be about tying womanhood to a specific set of genitals, I think did not sit, sit well for certain people. And I can definitely understand that critique as well. It is very reductive in terms of, you know, sex equaling gender. I also saw a lot of critique online of people saying that Barbie was kind of like feminism 101, particularly when it comes to America Ferrera's character's speech. She gives a impassioned speech to the Barbies about how difficult it is to be a woman, that you're expected to be, you know, a mother, but also expected to have a career, expected to be pretty, but not too pretty, expected to be polite, but strong, and that the kind of assumptions or expectations on women are so polarizing and so confusing that it's impossible to meet all of them. And some of the critique I was seeing was, you know, this was very basic. This is kind of like day one feminism. And, you know, they they were looking for maybe more concrete or complex themes in the movie. And although I, I can see that critique, I I think that is not necessarily the most helpful critique of Barbie. I think we have to look at Barbie for the vehicle that it is, which is it is a massive blockbuster summer film. Its audience is not gender studies professors or enthusiasts like myself, right? Its audience is a mainstream, very generalized audience where a portion of the audience is going to be adults who feel that nostalgia for Barbie and are going to be teens or preteens who maybe still interact with Barbie in some level, right? That's that's kind of the dichotomy of the audience that we have here. If we're having an audience that's 
that is that large, we cannot expect everyone to be coming in with even a basic idea of the tenets of feminism, right? Feminism as like a political movement. I found America Ferrer's speech to be on the nose, to be quite frankly spot on and something that was really important for an audience, a mainstream audience, like the audience of the Barbie movie to hear. And there's a great article in The Cut uh, that's an interview with America Ferreira where she talks about the process of writing that speech. And she actually helped Greta Gerwig write it. They kind of went back and forth and, and made sure that it was perfect. And I think that they they did what they could to instill these ideas of how patriarchy does oppress women, how assumptions and gender roles oppress women, and I think that it's also an example of how Barbie cannot be all things for all people. Just like in her speech, all women cannot be all things for everybody. Barbie, as an intellectual property, cannot be all things for all people. And that's okay. It's okay that Barbie the movie or Barbie the toy doesn't represent every aspect of every type of person. Barbie is one piece of the story, one representation of the human experience. And I think that to complement Barbie, we need lots of other types of stories. And, you know, if we're going to be doing more toy movies, I would love to see a, a blockbuster Bratz movie. I think that would be very fun. I know they're talking about Polly Pocket, but come on, Polly Pocket's too similar to Barbie. <laughs> like, we, we, need, we need diversity here. Um, but I think that, you know, I think we can critique Barbie. We can, we can have these ideas of she falls short in some ways or this movie falls short in some ways and at the same time hold on to the idea of does every piece of media need to represent every single idea ever and Barbie herself is a property with a tumultuous history uh, a history where the creator's own daughter disowned the idea of Barbie like it's it's a complicated character. It's a complicated property. And that's okay. And we don't have to resolve that by making Barbie be somebody or something that represents all aspects of all people. So all that to say that I think there are good takeaways from the Barbie movie. I think that anyone exposed to even a taste, a whiff of feminism is a, is a win in my book as a feminist psychologist that is important to me. Um, and, you know, we have to be understanding that there are people out there who may never have even had Feminism 101, and this is their introduction to it. And I would rather it be a fun, silly, brightly colored movie where these ideas can be presented in a palatable and accessible way than in a Borosnorrow, like, 50-page article, right? Sometimes we we need to package our messages in ways where people will actually get them and not just silo our ideas in our academic circles. So I would say that although I I, I do resonate with some of the critiques of Barbie and I, I specifically think that the, the ending could have been a little bit different, um, I do think that if we're looking at this as a step one of making feminism more accessible and more mainstream and obviously not the only step one but like as kind of a step one uh, then we have to be okay with it not being perfect and actually we have to be okay with the entire movement not being perfect um, because nothing will ever be perfect as long as human beings are in control of it. So I've rambled on long enough. I hope that you can tell that I absolutely adored this movie and hope that 
If you haven't seen it, you're able to go see it soon. If you have seen it, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. And what did, what did you think of Barbie? What were your critiques of Barbie, if any? Um, yeah, I, I just think it was a lot of really great fun. And I'm so thankful that I got to see it with a dear friend of mine who has been on the show before. Um, so yeah, thank you as always for listening all the way through to the end. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.